You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11 and ending at verse 21. And verse 21 is also the text for this morning's brief sermon. Let us together listen to the word of God. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore God's or Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, a rather common question these days is the question, what have you ever done for me? What has anyone ever done for me? If you listen very carefully to that question, you will note it's a rather self-centered kind of question because it all revolves around me and what is happening to me or what should be happening to me and in my life. It is, as I said, a very common question because we tend to live in a rather self-centered age and time in which people are constantly asking the me question. What's in it for me? Or what have you ever done for me? In some ways, it's also a question that's pertinent this morning, because, of course, this morning and this day, we celebrate Mother's Day. And then sometimes the question is also asked, what has Mother ever done for me? I think in most normal, healthy relationships and families, we understand that the question should actually be superfluous because it should be rather obvious what mother has all done for you. Mother has given you life. 
Mother has nursed you, fed you, cared for you, watched over you, clothed you, helped you with your homework, and done so many, many more things for you. So if there is any ingratitude here this morning on the part of children, or even grandchildren, hopefully reflecting on all the many roles that mothers play, will soon make it disappear. We know what our mothers and grandmothers have done and continue to do for us, at least we should. But the question, what have you done for me, is pertinent not only with respect to Mother's Day, it's also pertinent with respect to this Lord's Supper celebration. Because sometimes people also direct this particular question at God. What has God ever done for me? Well, how shall we answer that particular question addressed to God? Perhaps one of the best ways to do that is to look for a moment at this last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Because in this particular verse, you will find perhaps better than anywhere else in the Scriptures a very concise summary of what God has done for us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, beloved, that pretty well sums up the entire gospel. Here in one sentence, in one verse, you have the message of the scriptures all neatly compacted together. It's a neat package. We should also probably unpack it a bit. Notice, first of all, who the prime mover is here in this particular sentence or verse. It is God, not us. Again, we like to hog the headlines, but this is all about God. He is the one who is the subject. He is the one who is the initiator. God, it says. God made him who had no sin To be sin. Now that's a strange sentence or part of the sentence, isn't it? God made him to be sin who who had no sin. What's it referring to? Well, in a sense, what you need to understand here, there is a bit of an Old Testament background. And the Old Testament background is the Day of Atonement, or as the Jews still today call it, Yom Kippur. It's that day of the two goats. You remember the one goat that is sacrificed, his blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat and on the horns of the altar. But then there's another goat. And that goat is brought forward, and on that goat the high priest lays his hands, and then the goat is sent out into the wilderness, and eventually the goat dies. Now, when the high priest lays his hand on the head of the goat, what is he doing? He's transferring guilt. He's transferring the guilt, the sins of the people onto this animal, symbolically symbolizing the transferal of the people's sins and iniquities to this animal. And, of course, all of that is symbolic and prophetic 
It points us forward to our Lord Jesus Christ, of course, because when it says here that God made him to be sin, who is the him? From the context, you can see the him is Christ. God made Christ who had no sin. You know, that's that's the testimony of Scripture. That's the confession of the church of all times and places that we have a Savior who has no sin. He has no guilt. He has no pollution. He has no stain. He has no wrinkle. He's utterly spotless. You can't find anything wrong with him. You may remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They constantly tried. Constantly tried to trip him up. To get him to contradict himself. To make him fall into bad theology. But they always failed. And they failed because he had no sin. But now it says that God made him who had no sin to be sin. In other words, God acts like the great high priest. He takes the sins of the people and he transfers them onto Christ. And he becomes sin. The sin bearer. The sin goat. So he is made sin. Scripture doesn't reveal fully what this must have cost the Father. But you and I can probably conclude that this must have cost the Father a great deal. As it would cost any father, or by the way, any mother. You have, for example, a a son or a daughter who, who lives, maybe not a perfect life, but a very upright life. But for some reason or other, all the guilt and all the wrong that people do is transferred to that person who basically and fundamentally is innocent. That speaks of a fundamental carriage of, or miscarriage of justice. Of wrong. Yet that's what God does. He makes him who has no sin to be sin. And that speaks volumes about the love, the goodness, the mercy, the compassion of our God. And all the more so when you go on, when it looks, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we. But who's the object of all of this divine activity? Who's the object of this making of sin, of this transfer of sin? Who is the one who's carrying all of this sin and why? It's for us, for you and I. You know, if you're ever stuck in that question, what has God done for me? Then maybe you should remember this. God made him, your Savior, to be sin for you. So that for you there might be forgiveness. For you there might be life. For you there might be blessing. But notice one more thing, one final thing, and that is that we might become the righteousness of God. This is not just, beloved, about forgiveness. This is about forgiveness plus. 
but so much more. Because who is the righteous one after all? It's Jesus Christ, our Savior. We have a righteous God, we have a righteous Savior, but we are an unrighteous people by nature. So what does God do? God not only forgives our sins by making Christ sin, but he also transfers to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness. The fact that he's always lived a holy life. The fact that he's always been obedient. The fact that he's always lived in accord with the law of God. All of that is now credited to our account. You see, it's so much more than just forgiveness. Maybe you need to think of it in this way. It's a way in which we can all relate to. You're in debt. Your banker calls you in and says, what are you going to do about this million dollars that you owe me? And you look him in the face and say, I don't know. There's no million dollars in my bank account, so I can't cover it. But then somebody comes forward and they suddenly mysteriously place into your bank account two million dollars. What does that mean? It means there's a million dollars to cover your debt. But there's still so much more left over to enjoy. And you know, that's what God does. Our God is not a God of bare minimums. Our God doesn't expect us simply to scrape by. Our God is not a God who just simply wants us to balance the books. No, our God gives us so much, much more in Jesus Christ. Because the righteousness that He gives us comes from Christ. This brief sermon is entitled, What a Marvelous Exchange. And isn't it marvelous? Our sin or His righteousness. And that's now also what we're going to celebrate together this morning as we partake of the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper. Because this whole sacrament is about this one exchange That Christ takes our sins upon himself so that we might be filled to overflowing with his glorious, wondrous righteousness. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.